Voices. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to YDHGY, the podcast for the exhausted majority who likes their politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please share it with one friend. This podcast grows by word of mouth. Now, back in January of 2020, I decided to do a series on the national debt, which was due to grow by billions of dollars due to newly passed tax cuts. And that was before the phrase billions of dollars became passe in lieu of the trillions of dollars that were pumped into the economy in response to the COVID pandemic. And in recent months, there's been a fair bit of anxiety over the size of our nation's debt. And so this month we are diving back into the subject. Now, everyone's concerned with the size of the debt except for one critical party, and those being the people who keep buying U.S. Treasuries. So I thought it fair to start this series on the demand side of the equation with the question, who keeps buying this stuff and why do they do it? And to answer this, I invited Tara Sinclair, professor of economics and international affairs at George Washington University and a guest in the aforementioned January 2020 series to help explain the U.S. debt market, how it works, and why it doesn't just collapse like everyone keeps saying is gonna happen. This conversation helped me separate reality from my default method of catastrophizing and it lays the groundwork for some stuff we're gonna talk about in future episodes. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. I'll tee this up in the beginning of 2020 the U.S. debt was a quaint $23 trillion, equating to about 108% of GDP, according to data from the St. Louis Fed. I looked it up this morning, and as of Q3, it has climbed to around $28 trillion, or 122% of GDP. And justifiably, there's a fair bit of hand-wringing going on amongst certain people over how much longer we can continue to exist in the red before things unwind. And so given the U.S. issues debt in the form of bonds and bond needs buyers, the question I, I want to pose to you is who keeps buying this stuff and why do they buy it? But before we get to that, I think it, it would help to kind of level set how the debt market works because to be frank, when you and I first spoke, I thought I knew how the Fed worked and the Treasury worked. And it turns out that I was, I, I made a very common error. So maybe just to start off, could you explain the role of the Treasury and the Fed in debt markets? Well, these two institutions have very different roles at this point. Since the 1950s, when we had the Fed Treasury Accord, they really split their roles. So the Fed has responsibility for monetary policy, and so they're really focused on stable prices, full employment, moderate interest rates. That's really what their, their focus is. The Treasury 
is the agency that manages our debt. They are the ones that determine you know, how much bonds should be issued, whether they should be 10-year maturity, 20-year maturity, how much we should have in the form of really short-term T-bills, and all of that with dealing with the debt ceiling when that monster comes along as well. Okay. So from your description, it sounds like the treasury really holds all the cards when it comes to issuing debt. Where does the Fed come in and why do people always associate the Fed with debt markets? Right. That's a great way to think about this relationship between the Fed and the treasury. The Fed, however, is one of the buyers uh, and sellers, particularly in the secondary market for treasury securities. And so that's where sometimes people get confused between the primary market, which is that initial issuance versus mm -hmm. the secondary market. You can kind of think about it like stocks, you know, there's the IPOs and then yeah. there's the stock market where people are reselling. The same thing is happening with treasury securities as well. So the Fed is just one of the buyers of treasury securities effectively, or one of the sellers for that matter. Is exactly. That They're both buyers and, and sellers in that secondary market, depending on what type of monetary policy they're trying to do at the moment. Getting back to the original question, aside from the Fed, who else buys this stuff and why do they buy it? So if, if we think about who owns treasuries, it's actually a really wide range of different groups. And a lot of times people think about us borrowing a lot internationally. But the majority of holders of U.S. treasuries are U.S. residents and citizens. We own them through pension funds, through mutual funds, and through individual purchases that you might do either directly from Treasury Direct or uh, from your bank. And why are they buying it? So a lot of times people are buying it because it's a really safe asset. You feel like you have a secure rate of return on this in a way that you wouldn't when you're buying you know, stocks and, and other corporate bonds. There's more risk associated with other types of bonds as compared to treasuries. They're considered really to be the risk-free asset, not just for U.S. residents, but also internationally. And so that's why everywhere in the world, everybody wants to hold some U.S. treasuries. What drives that? Because I feel like I'm missing something here. Because generally, when we talk about U.S. debt, I would say I'm among the majority who has a bit of angst over the subject. So what are we missing? Because other people are buying U.S. debt. Other people don't seem to have a problem with the fact we've taken out another $5 trillion over the last like 18 months since we spoke. So what is the layman missing in this equation? The first thing is that typically when we're trying to think about how the government works, we relate it to our personal lives. And this is a case where the government is notably different from our own individual finances. And that's because we don't expect the government to ever have to pay off the debt. And in general, when we think we have a stable government and a stable economy, we expect that to continue to happen. And therefore, we don't have to worry about paying off the lump sum of the debt we only worry about the rising interest payments. And those are something to worry about these days. But it's somewhat misleading when we talk about like the national debt clock and we talk about you know, splitting up the national debt per capita or something like that. And we can say that, okay, so it's $90,000 per person in the US, but we'll never have to pay that off. It's not a bill that's coming due to each individual. So that's the first thing. Yeah. 
The, the second thing is why the U.S. debt versus other government debt, right? So you know, that's one reason why government debt might be appealing compared to corporate debt or household debt, which might have more risk. But the U.S. government is considered different from all the other governments in the world for a myriad of reasons. But one is that we're really big. Two is that the U.S. consumer drives global consumption, so we price things in dollars. And we are still kind of the, the global dominant economy that may be shifting somewhat, and people are constantly worried about that and watching for those changes. But right now, that's still the case. And that's why we all want to focus on one particular price to keep things settled in the international markets. And right now we price things in dollars. So aside from Congress being unable to reach an agreement on the debt ceiling, what are some of the other potential perils you see in the U.S. debt market? That's really the giant elephant in in the room that we're constantly looking at is the, the debt ceiling issue. Everything else looks really, really minor in comparison. We could imagine a world where, for some other reason, the U.S. considers not paying part of its debt and defaulting on part of its debt, but we don't have any clear indication that there'd be any reason for that anytime soon. It's not like we would be unable to afford it given the size of our economy. But you know, there's there's definitely been various concerns and wobbles in, in terms of the exact price that we might have to pay on that debt. And that's really, I think, the, the big thing that we're, we're watching, particularly as taxpayers, to see how expensive it might get to maintain our, our current debt level. And one of the big areas that people are watching is you know, the Federal Reserve right now owns more more treasuries than they have historically and how they are going to at first you know they're still in the process of slowing down those purchases but then eventually if they actively step out of that market if if they do it too quickly that might leave a gap where we might not have enough other buyers jumping into the market but that is a relatively minor concern and much more minor than a risk of default through a, a debt ceiling debate. So I want to go back and, and just drive two things home to the listener here, which is number one, most of us think of the U.S. national debt like our own personal debt. And it's not like a mortgage where we make our monthly payments and then we like own America at the end and we can retire on it. It's something that continuously rolls over. But the second part I want to get to is the issue of the service payments, because that mm -hmm. is a variable factor. And I know for the last decade, we've enjoyed very low interest rates. What could potentially change that? And what could potentially increase the amount of our budget that has to be dedicated towards servicing the debt? Well, this is one thing that we do see whenever the debt is growing, we have to be concerned about being able to afford just those minimum monthly payments in terms of the, the interest that we're paying on the government debt. That was already a relatively large size of the budget. And that's in a world where we have extremely low near zero interest rates. And we do expect that those rates are going to rise and normalize to something greater than zero. 
And that's going to mean a higher bill for citizens and taxpayers. Rather than focusing on the total size of the debt, what we want to think about is the total size of the service payments that we're going to have to make these interest payments. And that's going to be a function not just of the size of the debt, but also what the interest rates are. And that's, again, where the Fed does kind of come back in because they are setting interest rates and their interest rate focus is not on what this is going to do to taxpayers. That's not part of their decision. Instead, they're thinking about the interest rate that's going to give us stable prices. And there can be a trade-off here between the interest rate that will give us stable prices, which might be higher than what we as taxpayers might want in terms of an interest rate that we want to have for our debt service payments. And so if interest rates rise, what are the levers we can pull to get our way out of this? So one way to not have as large interest payments is to have a a lower debt. But another way is to grow our economy faster. So if we can see faster GDP growth, then we will get more in tax revenues, even if tax rates stay at the same percentage. And so that would make it much easier for us to pay off our debt. And that's really where economists tend to focus. If we're going to be optimistic about where the U.S. economy is going in the next 5, 10, 15 years, it's hoping that we can really see faster growth in our economy and that that'll make it easier for us to pay down this debt. And this is where the household analogy does work. Because if you think about, okay, if I can get a better job with a higher paying income, then I can have a bigger mortgage and I can afford that. It's the same sort of thing here when we're thinking about the government being able to support a larger total amount of debt if it becomes a smaller percentage of our national income and the revenue that goes to the government. Yeah. And one of the things I want to build on that one, because one of the things that I've come across, Tara, in my extensive career of web surfing is that there's a line of thinking that says that a lot of the debt we've accrued and a lot of the easy money policies that we've employed are actually crowding out. And my dog just walked in. He wants to hear this. So, so getting, getting back to what I said, there's a line of thinking that says that a lot of the debt that's been issued, a lot of the easy money policies have actually maybe suppressed productivity. And so in mm-hmm. a sense, maybe suppressed real economic growth. Is there merit to that thought or, or no? Well, there's definitely views on both sides on that. And I think it, it's probably some of column A and some of column B. There are theoretical models that suggest that government spending can crowd out private investment. And by crowding out that private investment, government spending might be going to exactly the sorts of things that we need to grow our economy. But it might also be that what the government is spending on is precisely what we need to grow our economy. And so this is where the emphasis on infrastructure becomes very popular. For example, if the the spending is going towards useful things for the broader economy, it might be less costly for us to support that going forward than if we're growing the debt just by lining particular individuals' pockets or something like that, where it's not Mm -hmm. having a broader economic impact. Got it. So like an example, if we want to take a a historical example that might not be controversial, if we look at the New Deal, for example, FDR employed a lot of people, built a lot of useful infrastructure, and that in theory had 
uh, positive economic repercussions going forward. Am I following you correctly? Absolutely. Although I will note that the New Deal is not completely non-controversial, but that oh, is that's the right <laughs> model to be thinking about. <laughs> all right. Well, I could do Reagan tax cuts to balance it out, but I'm just going to steer okay. clear of all that. The other thing I want to get back to is you did mention how the U.S. right now is the world's largest consumer economy. And so it makes sense to price things in dollars. It makes sense to think of the U.S. economy and it makes sense to think of the dollar in bigger terms than just the amount of debt the U.S. has. I'm going to just dig a little deeper into everybody's anxiety bucket, because aside from the debt, the mm -hmm. other thing a lot of people get anxious about is China. And there are some that say on like a purchasing power parity basis, the Chinese economy is actually bigger than ours. Mm -hmm. Is there a threat posed if we just end up with a much larger consumer economy in China? I don't think we're looking at that in the near term. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and it depends on how you're defining threat, but I think here you're defining threat in terms yeah. of dollar being the safe ha haven currency. When I say threat, what I mean is could a rising China becoming the number one consumer economy in the world potentially lower our ability to take on debt or potentially result in negative economic repercussions for the U.S.? That's definitely one possibility uh, amongst a myriad of possibilities, but I will note that uh, one interesting comparison is to look at Japan. And so mm -hmm. Japan currently is running near 200% GDP in terms of their debt. And mm -hmm. they are still able to support that. And so if we think about what's the, the, the point or the threshold at which the U.S. runs into an issue, and is that a function of the U.S. being you know, the, the safe haven currency or... Is it just about how much we can grow our debt to GDP ratio? I, I think Japan is kind of a comforting case to suggest that even if we weren't the dominant currency globally, we might still be able to support even this large or larger a, a debt uh, to GDP. Yeah. That's got a lot of hems and hums to it because we don't know what that threshold is, and it might be country specific, it might be circumstance specific, and it's really determined in large part by the willingness of markets to keep buying our debt when we're turning it over. And markets can be yeah. fickle. What would make the bond markets just turn on US debt entirely? Well, I don't really wanna give any great suggestions for, <laughs> I don't wanna be a scaremonger here, but, you know, any, you know, the really the big one, the one that we have seen where bond markets have really panicked has been in response to the debt ceiling. Mm -hmm. So if there were a true sense that the government might default on any part of its debt, even where default could just mean waiting a few days to pay, that could completely erode the trust that we have in, you know, between the government and these bond markets, and we might quickly see a shift away from the willingness to buy these assets. And then the Treasury would either have to pay a lot higher interest or perhaps issue less debt. Maybe that's going to limit how much debt we can actually put out there. That is one thing that I've noted in a number of different episodes throughout the years is the only time the US ever got a ding on its credit rating was when we couldn't agree to take out more debt. That was the only mm -hmm. time. 
And I think one of the points I drive home a lot in this podcast is that it is really our, it's, it's political instability that's the real threat, it seems. It's the inability for parties to reach an agreement on how we should proceed with the debt. That's the real danger. Because one of the claims that was made in an earlier episode along that line was that the U.S. government, in a way, is beholden to the bond market. And that can sometimes create a scenario where the government may not always act in the best interest of the people. Do you have any comment on that statement? I don't think we're at a place where Congress is sitting there debating whether we should or shouldn't implement some policy or spend on some initiative mm -hmm. based on how bond markets might respond. We might find ourselves in that yeah. situation in the future. And that's, mm -hmm. I think what people are worried about is not the current situation, but this projected future situation where we might be more beholden to bond markets than we are right now. I mean, one of the things I, I thought too, and I'd love your thoughts on this, and I think one of the areas where the US might be unique is when we talk about Japan or we talk about China or we talk about the Eurozone, for example, we have, for, the, for a developed nation, we have an exceptionally young population or let's just say a younger population. Am I right or am I wrong there? Well, it's, it's actually aging Is, fairly quickly. So even though we aren't the, the oldest, right? So we think about Japan, we think about Italy being older populations, yeah. but we're not young. Right. I, if yeah. you want to think about the distribution globally, Africa, Latin America, much younger than the U.S. An aging population could be a drag on our ability to finance the debt because we just have a lower worker to retiree ratio, correct? Well, that's one piece of it. But on the other hand, yeah. older retirees are also likely to want to hold a lot of safe assets. And so they might be converting okay. their stock holdings into treasuries in order to ensure that they have you know, a, a nice stable annuity uh, as they are entering into retirement. So there's an interesting mix between the financial decisions and the working decisions that people are making. This higher dependency ratio and having a larger non-working population relative to working population is a drag on our ability to grow the economy. And Getting back to something you just said, and this is, again, something I've said at least a few times on this podcast, is you mentioned Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa both have lots of young people. So if we're really concerned about the debt, would one of the mechanisms be to really encourage immigration from those regions, encourage immigration from places where there are younger people? That's one area where I would say that the, the majority of economists are in more agreement than the public at large. And this is where most economists would say, yes, immigration looks good for us for growing the economy. This is really an area where we could see marked improvement in our economic conditions if we did allow more immigration. Yeah, that's something too. And again, I just want to drive this home for the listener. You know, one of the things that is unique right now about America is our ability to absorb foreign talent. And I think that that is something that we are much better suited for, I think, than most developed nations out there. Some are getting better, but we're, we're one of the better ones. Um, and I know I'm jumping around a bit, but there was one other topic I wanted to get to 
which was the subject of inflation, because that's another big concern of folks. What influence does that have over the whole mixture? Well, inflation, it creeps in in a number of different areas. And there are, are these interesting trade-offs that occur here. So on the one hand, if the Fed were to allow a little bit more inflation, then that would benefit our, our debt sustainability in a couple of ways. First of all, our debt is in nominal terms. And so if we see higher inflation, then the, the value of our debt would actually fall. So that's, that's one piece. The other way is that with uh, higher inflation, that generally is associated with lower interest rates. If the Fed is not trying to, to actively reduce inflation by raising interest rates, we'll see lower interest rates. And so we'll have less interest that we'll have to pay on that debt as well. When there's higher inflation, when we think about that from this traditional view of that coming from increased money supply from the Fed, all the profits that the Fed gets, the Fed returns to the Treasury. We call that seniorage. And so that actually helps us also pay off some of that bill. So in a lot of ways, you would think that if we're really concerned about the debt, we might actually want higher inflation, although that's not typically the mix of people concerned about higher inflation and about the higher debt, when really there is some, in some ways, a, a trade-off between those. And so this is where the mortgage analogy actually makes sense, because if you bought a house mm -hmm. in 1970, your mortgage payment stayed the same. Whereas if you're paying it off in 1980, 1990, 2000, that payment as a percentage of income was far lower. Exactly, exactly. So even, we, it was perfect, pass the class. <laughs> but it's also, you know, it's, it's interesting because when we think about things, there is a difference between our nominal concepts, you know, just the dollars that we owe versus thinking about the, the real growth of the economy, how much goods and services we're able to produce. And so there's actually two ways to whittle down the weight of the debt on our economy. One is to grow our goods and services that we can produce, growing our real GDP. But the other is to just grow our nominal GDP. And so even if we don't grow the amount of goods and services very much, if the value of those in dollar terms goes up because of higher inflation, that will still lower that burden of the, the debt on us. Of course, I'd like to see the, the former. We'd like to have more goods and services for lots of other reasons. Mm -hmm. But either one of those will lower the, the debt to GDP ratio because it's in nominal terms. Got it. Well, Tara, I'm really disappointed to find out that this whole issue about the debt is multifaceted and nuanced. I was really hoping for a silver <laughs> bullet conspiracy theory that could take it all down. But I... I think yeah. if, if we're to walk away with one takeaway from this conversation, it, it sounds like to me, you know, when we look at how people stress about the debt and they think, well, you know, what if China stops buying debt? What if everybody buys Bitcoin? It really sounds like as far as the United States is concerned, any catastrophe involving debt would be a suicide rather than a murder. So we are sooner to see a, a debt issue arise from our own inability to compromise and get along than we are from some external threat to knock it down. That's definitely what we've seen in recent history. 
Longer term, we have seen that I mean, British pound sterling used to be the global currency, and then it became the dollar. So there can be these shifts. But notice the UK is still fine as a country, as an economy, like they are doing all right. It's not like they were destroyed by us coming in. And it was a relatively slow transition. Uh, and I expect that we would see something similar going, going forward as well. It wouldn't necessarily be just this dramatic one-off shock, unless for some reason we in some way defaulted on our debt. That is, as you pointed out, the big risk. If we do that, and mm -hmm. the only reason we've seen that we might do that anytime recently in, in history is because of a stalemate in Congress. Why is there so much hand-wringing over the debt? Because it's not just like people like me, it's, it's economists, it's people elected to office. Why are they so worried about it? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. The first one is the household analogy issue that we think about our households not wanting to be saddled by a large amount of debt because it can really impact our decisions. And if we're focusing on having to pay back not just interest, but also principal, it is a daunting amount of money. But just focusing on just the interest part can still be daunting in terms of thinking about all the other things we would rather as taxpayers support. You're paying the interest on past debt, particularly if it was for government spending that we didn't see as valuable, is not very appealing to taxpayers. And so I think that's the other thing that, that holds people back is, you know, we've got this large amount of debt, and if it didn't do debt valuable things for us, we may not even want to be paying the interest payments on it now. But we have to in order to maintain our global standing. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please consider leaving it a nice review. This podcast grows by word of mouth. You can also email any comments to me direct at heydan, that's H-E-Y-D-A-N, at Y-D-H-T-Y dot com. So the big takeaway from today is that there are many ways to ease our way out of the current debt situation. We can grow the economy by increasing productivity or via immigration. We can shrink the debt in nominal terms relative to the size of the economy via inflation. We can raise taxes, we can cut spending, we can do both. The biggest threat in the eyes of most economists I speak with is political instability. That gridlock over the debt ceiling might result in default and have huge repercussions for our ability to borrow and for the global economy as a whole. And this isn't the first time you've heard the level of political polarization in this country is a greater threat than the level of debt and it isn't the last time you're going to hear it in this series. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Um, bye bye